6 o'clock, so if you'd love, like to join, keep an eye on your email or give me a call, give the church a call, we'll make sure you get the information to join. Um, I have a special note from our sister Sandra. She wanted me to express to you all how much your notes, how much your letters, how much your text and your calls have meant to her. She's so sad that she can't be with us here in worship, but she doesn't feel like she isn't a part of this community just because she's not sitting in the pew. So thank you so much for everyone who has reached out to her. And if you want, feel free to send her a text or give her a call. Uh, you can send her a note, though she may not get it until she's back out of quarantine again. Um, and with her home, you can go visit. You just, uh, I recommend bringing a camp chair because you'll need to sit outside and talk through the window or use a phone. You'll join me as we prepare to worship God in prayer.
you'll pray with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me and in your presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Lord, as we come to you in prayer, we remember that you walk with us in all moments. Whether they are times where we're walking through valleys filled with bright blooms, or one that is the shadow of the valley of death. We know you are with us. We pray that we feel you there. We lift up our brothers and our sisters. We think especially today of our sister Jean. We pray for her and her family, asking you to hold them close and pray that you will give us the strength to be there in all moments in the knowledge to be who they need us to be. We know it matters. We know that these prayers matter, that our presence matter, that our love matters. We know that through those who have gone through those dark moments, and come out the other side saying how important it is that God is there and that we are there. We thank you for the strength of our brothers and our sisters. Hear now those things we lift up from our hearts to you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the glory. Forever. Amen. Good morning, everyone.
be signing copies in the back after worship. <laughs> Next week, I'm going to be jumping into a new series based actually off of the, the series that um, the Church of the Brethren camps, along with some other camps, did this last summer online. But it felt wrong to kind of leave Paul hanging around. If you may recall, we, we just were in the middle of his second mission. He was spending a year and a half living in Corinth. He will eventually make it back to Antioch. He will make a third mission trip out there, hitting up some of his old haunts and starting some new churches. He will eventually start planning his fourth mission, in which he will travel to Iberia, modern-day Spain, and he'll write letters to the Romans and other places looking for funding and support. However, he will be dragged before the authorities and eventually will be put on a boat to go stand trial before the emperor himself. He will travel across the ocean, the Mediterranean, end up shipwrecked on Malta, bitten by a snake, and where we come in today, he has finally made it to Rome itself. This is the last story as found, found in Acts 28, 30, 23 through 31. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. 
and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, and others were not. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke truth to your ancestors when he said through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will ever you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart have become calloused. They hear, hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore... I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed in the, his own rented house and welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So ends the book of Acts. Blessed is the word of God. Johannes was a tall man. So the story tells us. He was at least a head taller than pretty much everyone in his family, even in his hometown. Now, he was born in the province of Westphalia, Germany in 1670. So it does make a little sense. I mean, people were generally shorter in the 1600s. Now, he eventually lived in the town of Marienborn. And there he joined what eventually became the Church of the Brethren. Marian Borns in central Germany. But there was a problem. The Brethren, the Anabaptists, they weren't generally well liked by their Protestant and Catholic neighbors. Eventually, Johannes fled to Krefeld, which is near the border of France. This was a haven for Anabaptists. Mennonites, brethren, even their English spiritual cousins, the Quakers, lived there together in relative safety. I say relative because that's how it was. But Johannes wasn't about to stay put. He and his friend Jacob Price would travel the countryside preaching and teaching. But it wasn't Johannes's faith or even the fact that he was evangelizing, which is usually the big problem, that caused him to be imprisoned. No, he was imprisoned because he was tall. There was a king, King Frederick Wilhelm I, king in Prussia, father of Frederick the Great, who would reclaim the title king of Prussia. He had a bodyguard called the Potsdam Giants. Every member was at least six feet, Prussian feet tall, that is, which is six foot two in our system. So still even to this day, a pretty good height. But not every member actually wanted to be a part of this group. Many of them were pressed in the service, 
despite the fact that they actually got better pay than the normal soldier, better lodging than the normal soldier, and never actually saw combat, it was a pretty good place to be, but they didn't want to be there. Frederick was constantly looking out for more men to add to his collection. That's probably the best way to put it. By the time he died, there was over 3,000 people in his bodyguard. Other monarchs would send him gifts to all men. Even Peter the Great, Tsar of Russia, when he received the now lost eighth wonder of the world, the Amber Room, he sent back as a thank you gift many tall men to add to his collection. Frederick took this unit seriously. Even he, as king of a powerful nation, would go out and drill them on the drill yards himself. He considered it an honor that he got to bestow on others, and no one could refuse that. Now, as the story goes, according to Abraham Cassell, who would later write the biography on Johannes, it was on one of these many mission trips that Johannes was noticed by a Prussian officer and captured. They wanted him to join the Potsdam Giants. They offered him money. They offered him honor. They would tell him, you need to be a soldier and a personal bodyguard to the king of Prussia. But he refused, citing his faith. That didn't go well for him. We don't know all that they did to him, but we do know that the final torture was him hanging from the ceiling attached to it by two cords, one wrapped about a thumb and the other one about a big toe. That sounds incredibly painful, especially for a man who's well over six foot two of that size. That's a lot of weight on those two little digits. Still, he refused. So they dragged him before King Frederick Wilhelm I himself. Cassell records this conversation between the two men. Tell me, why will you not enlist with me? Because I have already long ago enlisted into one of the noblest and best enrollments. I would not, and indeed could not, become a traitor to him. Why, to whom, then? Who is your captain? My captain is the great Prince Emmanuel, our Lord Jesus Christ. I have espoused his cause and therefore cannot and will not forsake him. Well, neither will I then that you should. Then the king dismissed him, giving him a reward for his courage. Honestly, that's the strangest part of this part of the story to me. Because as I said, Anabaptists weren't well liked by basically everyone else. Apparently, Frederick had either less bias than his subjects did, or he just had a soft spot for people who were courageous in their faith. Of course, it didn't help that it didn't hurt the fact that Johannes was such a tall man, and well, as we know, Frederick liked tall men. Johannes would eventually immigrate here to the United States, where he joined Alexander Mack and Peter Becker, and they refounded what will eventually be the Church of the Brethren here. 
He moved to Amwell, New Jersey, founded a congregation there, which if you look, and I have not been able to find any information that says otherwise, is still the only Church of the Brethren in New Jersey. John, um, Johannes Noss, who we typically remember as John Noss, became one of the most influential ancestors of our tradition. But would we today have the same strength as John? I don't know. I like to think, sure, I can be that faithful. I can hold on that strong. But you never really know until you're hanging from the ceiling by your thumb and your toe. Paul would have understood this. Paul understood how hard the journey of following Jesus can be. I mean, we're just finishing up the story of Paul for now. He'll come back. I mean, Paul's always comes back in sermons and worships. But, I mean, as we look back, we look back all the way to, I think it was in June, when we first encountered Paul. As he stood there, named Saul, over the cloaks of the men who were stoning Stephen to death for his faith. And Saul approved. We remember him as he traveled the road to Damascus and Jesus visited him there. And I remember especially Ananias of Damascus who was incredulous when God told him to go heal this villain. God replied to him, Go, for he is an instrument in whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and before the people of Israel. And I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul does suffer. He's beaten, he's stoned, he's dragged, he's choked, he's imprisoned, he's shipwrecked, he's even bitten by a snake. He has fights with his colleagues. He's thrown out of towns. Rumors are drummed up against him who he has to constantly argue against. He's even ostracized by those he once thought his dearest friends. He has gone on three long mission trips. He has now been taken as a prisoner to Rome. In those days, he had written letters to the Thessalonians, the Corinthians, the Galatians, and one to the Romans themselves. These documents will become so well regarded, they will form the foundation of our faith. While he lives in Rome, he'll go on to write more letters. He has gone from rising star of Judea, faith, to being a nobody traitor, till perhaps the second most influential person in our Bible after Jesus. It's been three decades. He's gone through a lot. He's done a lot. But we go back to that first mission trip when he and Barnabas come into Antioch. They gathered together the people who had supported them going on that mission trip and they go they reported all that God had done through them and how God 
had opened a door to the Gentiles. Paul was, as God said, an instrument. A piano is a beautiful instrument. But without someone sitting there playing the keys, it's just a hunk of wood and metal and ivory. Though the modern one, plastic. It's silent. Paul gave himself fully over to the will of God. And in doing so, he allowed himself to be used to play and compose some of the most beautiful concertos that have ever been made. We are at the end of Acts. And Paul is living in a rented house under arrest for two years where he continues to preach and teach. Now, there are legends after this point. We have little hints of things, uh, the letters he writes while he's sitting there in prison, but we don't actually know what happens to Paul overall after this point. I think the heat's kicking on over there. We know he probably lives at least four years in Rome, perhaps as long as seven. And legend tells us that he was beheaded under Nero. He lived during the first time of persecution. The first time where Christians were singled out and attacked. And it was his preaching and teaching that was a prime reason for all of this persecution. So why were these Christians, these followers of Jesus, these disciples of Paul, so dangerous? They had to be suppressed. There's a lot of reasons. Christianity spread primarily among the poor, the enslaved, the disenfranchised, the people who provided the empire, the labor and wealth that sustained it. They were going after the bottom line. Christianity was different. It rejected the norms of Roman society. They did not work to gain wealth or power. They didn't take advantage of others for their own gain, but gave freely of themselves to those who needed it with no expectations of return. And finally, they did not worship the emperor. They did not worship the state. They did not go to its temples. They followed only one king and lived a part of only one kingdom. And there was no way the Roman Empire could invade that space. That's perhaps what made them most dangerous of all. Their first loyalty was not to the emperor or the empire, but to the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, and the kingdom of heaven. While Jesus was standing on that mount giving his great sermon, he told them, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Wealth, power, money. Paul and the other believers took this seriously. They understood that they would have to choose between Jesus and the material, between the earthly king and the heavenly one. But this is forgotten. Over the next 200 years, emperor after emperor will come and go, 
Some are okay with Christians. Many are not. Persecution ebbs and flows till finally Constantine comes to power. And in 313, he made all Christians members or citizens and protected by law. He gave back their lands and their churches. He called a council of church leaders together and said, you need to get it all together. All Christians need to have one doctrine they follow. And so they created what we now call the Nicene Creed. If you're not familiar with it, it's because we don't say creeds in these churches very often. Christianity grew at the faster rate than ever. I mean, when the emperor supports something, you generally jump on it. And that's saying something. They had been growing pretty quickly over the last couple centuries. But there was a problem. It started to more, look more and more like Rome. And by 391, worship of all other gods is banned, making more or less Christianity the only real legal religion with a little protection for Judaism. Now, I really wish I could say this is the golden age of Christianity. It's a Christian nation. It's a large and powerful Christian nation. But instead of moving more towards the kingdom of God on earth, it just simply moved closer to the kingdom of earth. Priests started to look more like Roman priests. Hierarchy was built. Rules created and enforced with deadly effect. We remember this as the Dark Ages. When Christianity had so far regressed that we as individuals sitting there worshiping God weren't actually allowed to have worship directly with God. No, instead we had priests and kings standing between us and God. Your loyalty was to them. Okay, we do call this the Dark Ages. And in many ways it was for the common person. But there's actually a lot of really great things going on too. But it's controlled. It's behind the doors. It's behind walls. We have men like Francis of Assisi and Jan Hus and John Wycliffe who are all trying to bring the church back to where Christ wanted it to be. Some, like Francis, did achieve this in certain amounts. But they were stuck behind walls. It wasn't allowed to be how everyone lived, only this group. Others, like Jan Hus, were executed so that their disease didn't spread among the populace. This is when we finally enter 1517. And a man named Martin Luther, who nailing his arguments that he's going to make at a conversation later, 99 of them, to the gate of the Wittenberg Cathedral. He, along with John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, would try to reshape this Roman Catholic Church as they understood it from their study of the Bible and the ancient writers, reshape it back, make it a good church again, to rid it of all that corruption. But there's a problem with that. That corruption was deep, millennia deep. And they ended up with a system whose theology we are a lot more in agreement with, with today, what we believe. 
But at the same time, it was still the power behind the throne, and the throne was at the power behind it. It still wielded and believed in wealth and power and its authority in itself. This is where our ancestors finally come into this story. The radical reformers. Okay, so I know when we hear the word radical today, we associate it with outsiders, those crazy people, the something new and different in a different direction that nobody really wants, but there's that group over there that's doing it. But the thing is, is the word radical comes from the Latin word for roots. Radical reformers were ripping out the old church by the roots and replanting. They ripped it out of its own pride, out of mammon, out of earthly power of itself and the state, and planted a new church with roots stuck into the kingdom of heaven, into the community of believers, and into the Bible. They were doing their best to return the church to what it looked like back in the book of Acts. This is where John Noss is in the story. Because after all, these new Christians, these radical reformers were dangerous and they needed to be suppressed. After all, it spread primarily among the poor and the enslaved, the suppressed, the peasants, the disenfranchised, the people who provided the kingdoms with labor and wealth that sustained it. They were going after the bottom line. It rejected the norms of European society. They did not work to gain wealth or power for themselves. They didn't take advantage of others for their own gain, but gave freely to those who needed it with no expectations of return. And finally, they did not worship the established faiths. They did not worship the popes or the bishops or the kings. They did not kowtow to earthly powers. And instead, we followed only one king and his kingdom. There was no way for those Catholic, Lutheran, and Reformed armies to invade that kingdom. Like Paul in his own time, they preached the good news at the, of the kingdom at the center of power, giving over their will to God's way. They leaned into the Lord's prayer, saying, your will be done, and rejected what everyone else believed and claimed was the norm and the way things should be done. They were the outsiders, those on the edge those everyone else looked at and raised an eyebrow. They were the radicals. Are we? You know, I started out, you know, can we be as strong as John? Can we be as strong as any of these reformers? As strong as Paul, as strong as John, as strong as Alexander and Minnow and all those who came before us? You know, that old saying goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Don't. Don't be the Romans. Be as Paul in Rome. Do as John did, standing there before a king. Be who Christ calls you to be. Don't look to power or wealth. Those are earthly things. And as Jesus told us, earthly things rust and are eaten by moths. Look to your community. Look to your prayer. Look to your relationship with God. Look to Jesus. 
and where you are led. Be radical. Go back to the root. I want to close with a hymn. I'm just going to read it. John Noss, I don't know if he wrote more hymns or not, but we do have one of his writings in our, Bible, in our hymnal, number 549. These words reflect the deep faith of Noss and how he always focused on where God was calling him next and what God called him to do. I'm going to slightly update the words and put in the yours instead of thys and whatnot as I read this. Savior of my soul, let me choose your goal. Myself to you I would surrender, choose the cross, be your contender. Let me choose your goal, Savior of my soul. Christ, extend the hand, for I cannot stand. Your power share with me, your soul's power share with me, and I, your follower, close will be. I am too weak to stand. Christ, extend your hand. Jesus, grant me grace so to run my race that I may victorious be your favor, show and prosper me so I can run this race. Jesus, grant me grace. Savior of my soul, let me choose your goal. Myself, I would surrender. Choose the cross, be your contender. Let me choose your goal. Savior of my soul. Thank you. Music's always a thing to clap for. As you go out today, be radical. Be willing to go back to the root, even if it's out there and different. Be willing to say, your will and not mine. Be willing to walk into the kingdom of heaven and be okay with the fact that it may look a little different than the king of men. May you be blessed, and may you be radical. Amen. Amen.